that differ from one's own. That's tolerance. Intolerance is an unwillingness or refusal to tolerate or respect opinions or beliefs contrary to one's own. We live in a thou shalt not judge um, era, don't we? That's become the 11th of the Ten Commandments. You know, I think it's probably, I think John 3.16 used to be the most quoted verse, but I would say that, that Matthew 7 verse 1 now is probably the most quoted and misquoted verse in the Bible. When, uh, when you try to talk to somebody about sin, they want to remind you, well, Jesus said not to judge. Thou shalt not judge. Let me give you a few examples of the preachers of tolerance being intolerant. In September of 2014, Ventura High School in California, the principal banned the football boosters from selling Chick-fil-A sandwiches at the, um, at, the, at the snack bar during the game. The principal, Val Wyatt, said, with their stance on gay rights, I don't want them on campus. And the superintendent backed her up and said, we value inclusivity and diversity on our campus. Sounds like they said they value tolerance, basically. And all our events and activities are going to adhere to our mission. But isn't that intolerant? Um, Elizabethtown, Tennessee, a little closer to home. May of 2011, the class president wanted to pray at graduation. Principal Dell Campbell said, and I quote, Any student who attempts to pray will be stopped, escorted from the building by the police, and arrested. End of quote. It's interesting, though, that tolerance is extended to just about everybody except Christians. Everybody gets tolerance. They get the true tolerance except for Christians. I'm going to show you an example, a little video clip. Some of you are familiar with a show called The View. <laughs> and groans go up across the auditorium. Not sure if you followed the news this week, but um, one of their favorite topics is the president and the vice president, and they took to task the faith of the vice president, and I just want you to listen to what they had to say. talking about her dish is not that interesting okay mike pence is hey, a lot girl, more conservative brother, but she's not actually revealing intimate secrets which to me shows that she's trying to atone for working in the trump white house oh, I she think wants she's trying to atone i think she's wants, trying to do a book that's why that's you know that's why every look you know i just think that she's trying to get a new job someplace she's trying to be accepted back in mainstream media after working in the trump white house and now i don't know i just think i actually don't think what she's saying is that interesting I I think what's was interesting is that she said that um, Jesus tells Mike Pence things to say. Um, when was she around I mean, Mike Pence, though? Well, because obviously she was around him because she she knows more uh, a lot more than I think that, that we all know about Mike Pence. But I, what I do know about Mike Pence is I went to law school in Indiana. He is a hated figure there. Actually, he's not very popular at all. And I think when you have a Mike Pence that now sort of puts this religious veneer on things and calls people values voters i think we're in a dangerous situation look i'm catholic I, i'm a faithful person but i don't know that i want my vice president um you well, know speaking in tongues and having jesus right. speak like to i him. said before i don't know if i want it's that it's one thing to talk to jesus it's another thing when jesus talks to you exactly okay well that's different I mean, that's different 
this if I'm not correct? But I'm, no, I'm hearing voices. You know, Joy, as a, as, as, a, as a Christian, that's just part part for the course. You talk to Jesus, Jesus talks back. What concerns me is how long is the conversation Jesus with Jesus? Jesus is telling him to say things. I mean, but that's what I'm saying. You know, if you, if you talking to, you know, because I talk, wait, I have Jesus sure. for a parking space. Can he talk? Can, my question is, can he talk to Mary Magdalene without his wife in the room? <laughs> I don't know. I, So it's perfectly fine to say that if you believe that Jesus talks to you, that that's mental illness. That's what she said. I, for, listen, friend, this is not a political statement. I don't care if Mike Pence was a Democrat or an Independent. That's just bashing people of faith. That's just, that's just telling people of faith that, listen, you are stupid you are a backwoods hick if you really think that God speaks to you. Friend, if I didn't think that, that Jesus spoke to me, I wouldn't be up here preaching tonight. I wouldn't have anything to say if I didn't believe he spoke to me. We're in the series Sermon on the Mount. The title of the sermon is, Is It Ever Right to Judge? Is it ever right to judge? Take your Bibles and open them to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew 7. Going to read the first six verses. And then see what Jesus really had to say. Matthew 7 verse 1. I invite you to stand as we read God's word. Judge not that you be not judged. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye, and look, a plank is in your own eye? Hypocrite. First remove the plank from your own eye, then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give what is holy to the dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet, and turn and tear you in pieces. God bless the reading of his word. Go ahead and be seated. There, there are three words that I want you to understand tonight in order to understand this passage. The first word is discrimination. Now, discrimination has become an ugly term. But you need to understand, not all discrimination is bad. If you are a parent and you don't teach your children to discriminate certain things, you have failed as a parent. If you don't teach your child to discriminate between good and evil, between right and wrong, then you have failed them as a parent. Not all discrimination is wrong. We should teach them to discriminate between good and bad. Discrimination is simply evaluation. You evaluate, okay, so what's good, what's bad in this situation? It's simply elimination. You turn away from the bad, and it's appropriation. You turn to the good. That's what, we're, that's what discrimination is. They, some people would say, well, Jesus said we should never judge. Did he say that? No, that's a misquote. In fact, in John 7, 24, here's what Jesus said. Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. And so here he clearly says that we are to judge certain things. All right? Matthew 7, in our text... Down, drop down to verse 15 and 16. 
Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs uh, from thistles? Clearly, you have to discriminate between right and wrong. If you're walking in a, in a field and you see a tree that's bearing fruit and you say that is an orange tree, you are discriminating between oranges and tangerines or whatever else you're telling the difference between the two you're making a judgment call and so what jesus said is is we use discernment to discriminate between a wolf and a wolf in sheep's clothing and a sheep first corinthians 2 15 paul says but he who is spiritual judges all things let me ask you are you spiritual tonight are you are you a spiritual person if yes then you learn to judge all things according to Paul. And the word judge here is the word carino, which has several meanings. It can mean to separate. So you, if you judge something, you separate one from another. It can mean to choose, to choose or favor one over the other. It means to determine, uh, to condemn. The correct meaning is determined by the context. Whenever a word can have several meanings, you have to look at the context in order to get the correct meaning for that particular context so paul says he who is spiritual judges all things obviously he's talking about discernment about evaluation in other words you can tell the difference between right and wrong if you're a spiritual person if you have the holy spirit living inside of you first john 4 1 the same idea beloved do not believe every spirit but test the spirits whether they are of god so, so don't go around saying, you know, well, I'm not, I'm not going to judge whether or not something's right or wrong because Jesus said not to judge. On the contrary, he says to judge with righteous judgment. To judge righteously, not, not judging a book by its cover, by how it appears. Just because just you may see somebody with, with several holes that God didn't intend for them to have and ink all up and down their arms, don't judge the book by the cover. That's not how we judge. We judge with righteous judgment, he says. There are certain, certain things we know are, are wrong because God's word says so. I mean, adultery, fornication, sodomy, lying, stealing, cheating. We, we know those things are wrong. Murder, we, we know it's wrong because God's word says it's wrong. But you need to understand that the world hates moral absolutes. The world can't stand for something to be inherently right or inherently wrong. If you say, well, it's just wrong or it's just right because God's word says so, you'll hear terms like narrow-minded, bigot, fundamentalist, take some word and attach phobe on the end of it, homophobe or whatever you're afraid of, they would say. Uh, that's what we're going to be called if we teach our children the difference between right and wrong, to discriminate between right and wrong because God's word says so. You know, we're said to be unloving if we teach what's right and wrong. Well, how can you say that? Because that, that's unloving to say that that lifestyle is a sin or the way that person is living is wrong. That, that's just unloving. No, according to Scripture, it's unloving not to say that it's sin. Isaiah 58.1. Cry aloud, spare not, lift up your voice like a trumpet. Tell my people their transgression and the house of Jacob their sins. God, God says, listen, cry out and say, hey, this is wrong. 
you're living wrongly. Leviticus 19, 17. You shall not hate your brother in your heart. You shall surely rebuke your neighbor and not bear sin because of him. In other words, if, if, if you don't tell your neighbor they're living in sin, you hate them. That's what the law says. The only sin today, it seems, is to call sin, sin. I mean, that's the only sin everybody can agree upon, is to call sin, sin. I, I, you may not believe this, but people have left Eastwood since I've been here because I was narrow-minded and bigoted and fundamentalist. I remember a message I preached entitled, Are All World Religions the Same? There was a young lady who had been coming to church here before me. She, she was here when I got here. And um, she came and met with me. Because in that message, I used John 14 where Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And I made the case of the exclusivity of Christ, that Jesus is the only way to heaven based on the Word of God. She came to me and she said, do you really believe that? And I said, well, yeah, I do because God's Word, it's not that I believe it, it's, it's what God's Word says. And she said, well, I have a lot of friends who are Muslim and, and, and Buddhist, and, and so you're telling me they're going to hell even though they are righteous people? She said, they're better than a lot of people who attend church here. And I said, I don't doubt that one bit. But yes, I'm telling you on the authority of God's Word, they're going to hell unless they place their faith in Jesus Christ. And she left. Hadn't been back. And, you, you know, I miss her, but I don't. I, I miss her because I want her to be sitting under the truth. But at the same time, if, if folks are going to take issue with the Word of God, it's not me they're really taking issue with. I just simply believe the Bible is the Word of God. And so we have a responsibility to teach people to discriminate between good and evil. Let me give you a second word that you need to understand to, to understand this passage. It's the word toleration. I gave you a definition of it a minute ago, but let's talk about toleration because I think Matthew 7.1 is a picture of genuine, true toleration. Toleration that's merciful. Toleration that's sympathetic. I think what Jesus is forbidding here is unmerciful, unsympathetic, self-righteous judgment. It's good when you interpret Scripture to let Scripture interpret Scripture. Do you understand that principle? If you want to understand what a passage means, then you take other passages that deal with that subject and let Scripture interpret Scripture. And so I want to take a couple of other verses Jesus spoke and let them interpret Matthew 7, 1. In Luke 6, 36 and 37, Jesus said this, Therefore, be merciful just as your Father also is merciful. Judge not, and you shall not be judged. Condemn not, and you shall not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. So what's Jesus saying? Well, if, if I have issues, and I do because we all do, right? So, so because I have issues, I need mercy, and I need forgiveness, and I don't need condemnation, all right? Does that mean that you should just approve of whatever I'm doing? No, that's not what it means at all. If I'm in sin, you lovingly rebuke me. But when we, when we judge condemningly, we are usurping the rights of Jesus. We're doing what only Jesus is allowed to do. See, when we judge with condemnation, we're playing the part of Jesus. Again, Scripture interpreting Scripture, John 5, 22. For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son. 
And so if we judge without mercy, without grace, if we judge in condemnation, then, then we are taking on the role of Jesus. And not only that, if we judge people inside, inside the family, do you know we're acting like the devil? Because Revelation 12 says he is the accuser of the brethren. And so when we condemn those inside the family, we're, we're acting like the devil. None of us are just enough or loving enough to judge another person's motives. I don't know your motives, you don't know mine. I want to give you a test so you'll understand whether or not, if, if you have a judgmental spirit, all right? If other people's faults improve your opinion of yourself, you have a judgmental spirit. If you can look at other people's faults and say, well, I, that just makes me feel better about who I am. That's a judgmental spirit. If other people's faults decreases your concern for your own faults and failures, that's a judgmental spirit. If you can look at them and say, well, look, I'm not, I'm not that bad, so I'm not really going to be concerned about the issues in my life because they got bigger issues than I got. If others' failures produces a desire to see them punished, nuke them, God. That's a judgmental spirit. If, uh, if someone fails and you're eager to point it out, you can't wait to see them so you can say, <laughs> that's a judgmental spirit. If someone fails and you have a tendency to review their past failures, well, now that we're talking about this, let's go back. I mean, because you have a history, you know, and, and you get historical with them. That's a judgmental spirit. What, why do we have this tendency to judge mercilessly? Jesus gives us the answer. See, we have this tendency to act this way because of sin in our own life. Look at verse 3. Jesus says, and why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye, and look, a plank's in your own eye. Hypocrite, first remove the plank from your own eye, then you'll see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. I think we um, sometimes judge mercilessly to feel better about ourselves. If we can pull someone down, that in essence, uh, we think, elevates us. How close do you have to get to somebody to see a speck in their eye? Now, Jesus uses the term speck, all right? Especially if you have a log in your eye, how close do you have to get in order to be able to see a speck? You got to get pretty close, right? I mean, you have to be real close in order to see that. It complicates things, the fact that you have a log. In essence, here's what Jesus is saying. You know what you see? You see what you're looking for. That's what he says. He says, you're going to see what you're looking for. In a person's life, you'll find what you're looking for. In a church, you will find what you're looking for. Let's assume you could talk to birds and birds could talk back, right? And you wanted a bird to fly over the horizon of, of central Kentucky and come back and report to you what they saw. You wouldn't ask a buzzard to do that, all right? Because a buzzard is not going to come back and tell you, hey, I saw rolling hills and I saw, I saw beautiful homes and beautiful people. I mean, they're not going to give you that report. The, the buzzard's going to come back and say, I saw a deer with maggots that was dead. Why? Because that's what the buzzard's looking for, right? The buzzard only sees what the buzzard looks for, and that's the way we are. We, we see what we're looking for. And, you know, if, if you want to find a speck in my eye, you're going to find it. If I want to find a speck in your eye, I'm going to find it. Uh, but Jesus says we have to examine our own lives first. That's why he says, be merciful. 
Again, Luke 6, Therefore be merciful, just as your Father is also merciful. Judge not, and you shall not be judged. Condemn not, you shall not be condemned. Forgive, and you'll be forgiven. He tells us to be merciful because we need mercy. I want to call, call your attention to two words in verse 5. One is the word first, and the other word is the word then. First remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. First means first in place or of, of, of importance, and so Jesus says the most important speck in a person's eye is your own. Examine your own life first. Judge yourself first. Investigate your own life first. Paul told the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians eleven thirty one, 31, he said, for if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. It's the same thing Jesus is saying. Look at your own life. D.A. Carson writes it this way about this passage. He says the Pharisees judged and criticized others to make themselves look good. Christians should judge themselves so that they can help others look good. If we do not honestly face up to our own sins and confess them, if we do not pull the plank out of our own pupil, we blind ourselves to ourselves, and then we cannot see clearly enough to help others. Do you know the procedure for speck removal is a very delicate process? My son Aaron is a fireman. And a couple years ago, he was working as a volunteer fireman at um, the Barron River Fire Department. And he'd worked, a, he'd worked a fire on a Friday night, Saturday morning kind of thing. And he came over to our house on Saturday and... Um, he said, man, I've got something in my eye, and it's killing me. And so I had to get real close and saw a tiny little black dot on his eye. And I remember we took him to the emergency room at the medical center, and they took him back, and they put him under these bright lights, and, and the, the lady was very careful and cautious. What he had was he had a tiny speck from the ash, that had gotten on his eye and it was so painful and she was so careful in how she it took great patience and gentleness to help with his vision impairment the then we can ourselves see clearly so we can help others correctly but in the spiritual realm we have to be delicate souls hang in the balance once once we get the plank out we can help with specs but it's a delicate process you just don't go up and say here let me help you with that and rub their eye because you'll scratch the eyeball it's a delicate thing to get the speck out after david was confronted by nathan about his sin with bathsheba he wrote psalm 51 and there's a couple of verses that verse 10 and verse 12 here's what david says create in me a clean heart O god and renew a steadfast spirit within me Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with your generous spirit. So that's what he prays. He says, he says, God, I'm confessing it before you. In another verse, he says, against you and you only have I sinned. Even though he sinned against Uriah, he understood that all sin ultimately was against God. And so he comes clean with God. And then in verse 13, right after the end of this, here's what he says. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners shall be converted to you. That's the same thing Jesus said. David got right with God, and what was the result? Then he was going to help others get right with God. Jesus says, take the plank out, then you can help your brother with the speck. But not until you deal with the plank first. We try to make people conform to our opinion of what they ought to be. Try to make them like us. 
And, and because that then makes us feel like they are fine. In Greek mythology, you know, I took, I took Greek mythology at Florida State, and I'm embarrassed to tell you this. I took it the same semester as Old Testament 1, and I got a B in Old Testament 1 and got a, an A in Greek mythology. Just coming clean here, all right? But in Greek mythology, a son of Poseidon was a god by the name of Procrustes, all right? Procrustes had a stronghold in an area between Athens and Eleusis. He would invite passers-by to spend the night, and he would offer his bed for them to sleep on. Well, what he would do then, when they would take him up on it, if they were too short, he would stretch them to fit the bed. In later stories, if they were too long, he would amputate to make them fit the bed, but everybody had to fit the bed perfectly. That's what Procrustes would require of them. I think um, Procrustes is still with us today because we try to force people to fit into the image that we have. We judge mercilessly because of our iniquity and our insecurity and because of our, our ignorance. We, we often don't know the problems and the issues. We don't know their hearts, their background, their temptations. We don't know all the facts. Paul said in Romans 14, 4, Who are you to judge another servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand. But I think we also judge sometimes because we're insensitive. We're, we're calloused. Our hearts become hard. All across Bowling Green tonight, there are people that are hurting. There are people that are living in sin. And, and by the way, you know, somebody that's living in sin, do you have to point that out to them? You really don't. Because John 16, I believe it's verse 7, Jesus says the Holy Spirit is convicting the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. So the Holy Spirit's already telling them that they're not living in a way that they should be living. So you don't have to point it out to them. They, they, they know. Um, but they're, they're in your neighborhood. They're, they're where you work. Some of them are in your family. And what they need is they need love and acceptance. They don't need merciless, unloving spirits. Does that mean you accept their sin? No. But we have to learn to differentiate between the sin and the sinner. We do. I mean, we have to, tell the, we have to be able to tell the difference between the sin and the sinner. And we've got to, we've got to learn somehow to love the person who's living in sin while, while we don't necessarily affirm their sin. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. But it's verse 17 that, that, that we need to understand. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And, and so we don't have to condemn people. They're condemned already. Luke 19, Jesus is passing through Jericho. There's a little tiny tax collector who climbs up into the sycamore tree named Zacchaeus because he wants to see Jesus pass by. If you know the story, does Jesus stop at the sycamore tree and point his finger up at Zacchaeus and say, you lying, thieving cheat. You have robbed these people blind. You are a sinner on your way to hell. No. What's Jesus do? Zacchaeus, come down because I'm going to your house today. What Jesus just did was separate the sin from the sinner. He said, I'm going to love the sinner. 
There, there's no evidence in Luke 19 that he ever approved of the sin. In fact, I think the implication is that he didn't because at the end of the meal, Zacchaeus says, listen, if I've cheated anybody, and we all know he did, he says, if I cheated anybody, I'm going to give him fourfold back what I've taken from him. Um, we, have, we have three standing committees at Eastwood. We have the, the leadership committee and the stewardship committee and the personnel committee, but we have an unwritten committee, and it's called the Sin Seeker Committee. And um, we, we need to resign off that committee tonight if we're on it. We just need to quit because hurting people need love and mercy and not condemnation. So toleration. The third word, and I'll be done, is examination. You want to understand this passage, you have to understand the word examination. In verse 3, the Lord's basically saying, examine yourself. The hardest, the hardest sin to deal with is your own sin. Listen, it's a whole lot easier, I'm being honest here, it's a whole lot easier for me to deal with your sin. You know, if, if, if I know there's something going on in your life, it's real easy for me to come to you and say, now nah, you, you know you shouldn't be living that way. The hardest person to deal with their sin is me. For me to deal with my own sin. Let me ask you tonight, are you willing to ask the Holy Spirit to reveal to you if there's any sin in your life? Now, don't ask him unless you want to know. Because if you ask him, he's going to tell you. So are you willing to really ask him that tonight? I think if, if you ask him and he shows it to you, and you repent, you'll find mercy and grace if you seek it. This is Rebecca Thompson, her little sister Amy, and their mom. Sorry that the picture's not better than that, but it's the clearest one that I could find. Rebecca Thompson fell twice from the Fremont Canyon Bridge, and she died both times. See how'd that happen? Well, the first fall, she died from a broken heart. The second fall, she died from a broken neck. Not long after this picture was taken, when she was 18 and her younger sister Amy was 11, they were abducted from a store in Casper, Wyoming. They were driven 40 miles to the Fremont Canyon Bridge where Rebecca was br brutally beaten and raped. Somehow she convinced them not to do that to her younger sister Amy, and so they just took Amy and threw her off the bridge, threw her to her death. Amy died on impact as she hit a rock near the river. They threw Rebecca over, and she slammed into a ledge and ricocheted into the water. Her hip was fractured in five places, but she made it to the shore where um, she wedged herself to where she could stay afloat, and they found her at dawn. The doctors treated her wounds, and the courts arrested the people that were the attackers, and they imprisoned them, and life went on. But Rebecca never really got off the canyon floor. Physically she did, but emotionally she, she never did. Nineteen years later, she returned to the Fremont Canyon Bridge at the age of 37. Her boyfriend and her two-year-old daughter were there. And her boyfriend pleaded with her not to do it. And she started to cry. He didn't want the little child to see the mother cry and so he turned to try to shield the two-year-old from seeing the mother cry and that's when he heard the splash he heard her body hit the water what caused her to jump that night was it fear possibly 
At the trial, her, her attacker taunted her, told her he would get her, and she knew that at some point he might get parole. Was it anger? Well, she was probably ang- angry at the rapist, rightfully so, at a system that would possibly allow them parole, probably angry at herself, angry at God. She, she was probably angry. Was it guilt? Probably. Her friend said that she struggled because she lived and her sister didn't. She felt guilty about that. Was it shame? Probably. Thousands knew about her humiliating past. I mean, it made papers all over. So 19 years later, she returned to the Fremont River Canyon Bridge. Now, I tell you her story, and I've told it to you once before, and I tell it again because gorges of shame and guilt run deep. You can't outrun yesterday's tragedies. Every every one of us have them. And the tentacles reach and reach, and they bring us back to the bridge of sorrows. It was your fault. You should have been different. You were to blame. You should apologize. But but friend, for, for most of you that are dealing with something like that, you know, she wasn't a volunteer. She was a victim. And when stuff like this happens, we're not volunteers, we're victims. For some, for some of you tonight, the shame is private. Spousal abuse, maybe you were molested by a pervert, only you know. For some, the shame was public. It it was very public what happened. But here's the thing, the pain is the same. There are Rebecca Thompsons in every city. There are Rebecca Thompsons here in Bowling Green. There are Fremont bridges in every town. The Bible is filled with stories like Rebecca Thompson's. Hers is a story of failure, of abuse, of shame, of grace. In John 8, they bring Jesus, a woman caught in the act of adultery, right? They want to stone her. The Pharisees are custodians of conduct, and so they're going to take care of her and they tell, her in John, in, they tell Jesus in John 8, for this woman was caught in the act of adultery. It's not like we heard that it happened. She was busted as it was happening. I would imagine this woman probably is desperately trying to hide her nakedness. Nothing can hide the shame, though. I mean, she's standing before the Lord, and it's obvious that she's guilty. She's going to be the talk of the town. She's going to wear a scarlet letter. But the greatest travesty is not mentioned in the text because the Scripture says there had to be two witnesses. And, you know, you can't, you can't commit adultery by yourself, right? And, and so if she was caught in the act, they should, have, they should have had a man that was with them as well, but they don't. Jesus reminds them of the law of Moses, and he bends down and he begins to draw in the dirt. We don't know what he wrote in the dirt. I, I personally think he probably wrote their names and some of the sins they'd committed as if to, to say, look, I know, what, I know what you've done and I know what you've done. And at one point, he um, says, he who is without sin casts the first stone. The only sound you hear is the drop of rocks and the shuffle of feet. Jesus is left alone with this woman trying to hide her nakedness. And surely a lecture's coming. Surely there's a sermon in this. I mean, he's the greatest preacher that's ever preached. And so surely he's going to give this woman a sermon. Woman, where are your accusers? 
Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Jesus separated the sin from the sinner. How's God react when you fail? Take Jesus' words and frame them. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. If you'll watch tonight, Jesus is writing. And he's not stooped over writing in the dirt. He's writing on the cross. And he's just writing a, a simple phrase. I love you. Tonight, if you're walking in sin, his grace is greater than your sin. If you know folks that have sin in their life, friend, God's grace is greater than the sin they're committing. We have to separate the sinner from the sin, and we need to love the sinner. We don't have to love the way they're living, but we've got to love them for them to know that our faith is real. That's what Jesus means when he says, judge not. Not to judge without righteousness in examining our own life. Father, I pray that, that tonight we would think about those that we know whose life is a wreck. Well, even back up before that, Lord, first, I, I pray that we would think about our own life and that we would truly ask your Holy Spirit if there's sin in our life. And then we would listen, and if there is, we would deal with it. We'd confess it to you and repent of it and receive your grace and your mercy. Then, Lord, I pray that you would lay on our heart those people whose lives are a mess. We may not know the circumstances. They may be like Rebecca Thompson, and, and their life is a mess because of something that happened 20 years ago. And Lord, what they don't need is judgment. What they need is love. What they need is for us to extend to them grace and mercy and not condemnation. Lord, it's not our job to sit on the seat of judgment. That's your job. Now, you've said that we can discern, that we can know by fruit. But even when the fruit's bad, Lord, help us love the tree. We don't have to love the fruit, but help us love the tree, the person who is bearing the bad fruit. God, I pray that you've given us insight to what you were saying here in Matthew 7, 1 and following about judgment. Lord, help us to be discerning. Help us to, uh, to be tolerant. Lord, help us to express the same kind of love that you expressed in John three sixteen when you tell us you gave your son in the next verse reminding us that you didn't come to condemn the world but that the world might be saved God our desire is not to condemn the world but that the world might be saved have your way in our heart and life now we pray in Jesus name Amen